0: Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet, I'm St. John Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this week we're talking about Giacomo Puccini's most famous opera, perhaps La Boheme, which debuted in Turin in 1896, Eric. Right, and it was one of two bohems, actually. Uh,
1: Leon Cavallo composed one as well, Leon Cavallo the composer of Pagliacci. And um, Puccini went ahead with his anyway and said, well, <laughs> well, history, I think he said, history will decide <laughs> which is the greater. And uh, it, it kind has. of has. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Both operas are based upon Henri Merger's novel, Scène de la Vie de Bohème, right. which is set in the Latin Quarter of Paris among these bohemian types. Yes, these
1: young poor penniless students who are huddled in a garret up in, in the uh,
0: in a loft in in Paris trying to stay warm as we meet them. And in act 1 right at the very beginning we meet these four that are they are inseparable friends as Rodolfo who is a poet, yes, Marcello who's a painter, Colline who's a, a philosopher and then Shonard, who's a musician. And they are living, as you said, in this cold, cold garret. It's Christmas Eve. Yeah. It's freezing outside, and they are struggling to stay warm. Yes,
1: trying to keep the fire going with anything possible, including Rodolfo's latest play.
0: (laughs) What we have at the beginning of act one here is this sense of camaraderie, this sense of of playfulness. They tease each other. They are friends who are enjoying the bohemian life, and they are all from families that are wealthy families. They they have chosen to live this bohemian life, haven't they? Yes, they have, and it's important to note that
1: they are young.
0: They are very young.
1: This is an innocence to experience story, uh, as these young people, uh, are forced to come to terms with the reality of, of life and the fact that death
0: is a part of it. As you said, Rodolfo tosses an act of his, the tragedy that he's writing onto the fire to, to create some uh, some warmth. And uh, Coline comes back from trying to pawn some of his books unsuccessfully. Right. And he throws some pages from one of his books onto the fire as well. And then Shona shows up. And he's got a, bounty. a boatload of money. <laughs> <laughs> a bounty. <laughs> he did some work, three days work, for some eccentric Englishman. Right. Who wanted him to play his violin for his parrot. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he's earned this money. And in that true spirit of, of, of friendship, whatever each of them earns is divided between the four of them. Shared. Yes, it's all shared wealth. So he comes in with some money, but he also comes in with, with some food, food and some drink.
1: Which they eagerly you know, uh, receive and, and are anticipating uh, consuming.
0: Then there's a knock at the door, and Benoit, who is their landlord, shows yeah. up. Yes. And he has this very unreasonable request that they pay their rent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> their past due rent, thank you very much. And they're all in a panic. So they, uh,
1: they sort of close ranks to distract him. They kind of uh, you know just sit down for a while. Well, let's have, have a some, drink. Have a drink. Let's talk. We we never get to talk, you know. So they talk <laughs> with him for a while, and and they get him to start, you know,
0: expounding and telling stories, and and he starts to talk about the the, the women that he meets in cafes. Exactly, and they, even though he's married.
1: It, well, and that's that's the the pretext that they grab upon, and they are. Scandalized that this married man is is about cavorting and flirting with other women, and they, oh, they're just incensed, and they just usher him unceremonious, unceremoniously out the door without paying him the <laughs> without
0: rent. paying the rent exactly. <laughs> Up until this point in Act One, we have this comedy; it's light. They are joking around, they are playing uh, with Benoit.
1: Youthful high spirits abound, and and it's it's. I mean, Puccini is genius uh, at setting the stage, and really. Um, making us feel, the, as you say, the camaraderie between these four friends. They are clearly people who know each other really, really well and you know have a great deal of love and affection for one another and, and just their high spirits, their youthful high spirits, comes out in the music and in their interplay and in the way that they simply relate to one another. So we really get a sense of who
0: these people are. They're not just
1: operatic tropes being thrown up on a stage.
0: They decide, because it's Christmas Eve, they want to go to their favorite hangout, which is the Café Moumous to uh, get a meal because they've got money. The three of them go off, and Rodolfo has to finish an article he's writing, and he says, I'll join you at the café in a little while. Right. So off they go, and then there's a knock at the door, a fateful knock at the door. Oh, boy. Of their (laughs) garret. And Rodolfo opens the door, and there is... Mimi. Mimi. Why has she knocked on the door?
1: Sure, her candle has blown out and she can't she needs someone to light it for her.
0: Rodolfo invites her in and what is his initial reaction to her and seeing her? Well, he's kind of thunderstruck. I mean, she's
1: she like him is is a very poor young woman and she's and she's kind of she's kind of shy and she's frail. Yes, very much so. If physically so,
0: you can see it. There is an essential difference, though. We talk about their poverty. But she is not poor by choice. Right. She's a seamstress. Right.
1: she's, She's a young working girl, and she just can't, you know, she's not able to make a wage that allows her to, you know, rise above the station where she is. She hasn't, as you say, hasn't chosen to be there. She's stuck. But
0: Rodolfo is captivated by her. Completely. And he invites her in. And she loses her key. Right. And he finds it, but, but he doesn't, doesn't tell her. her. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to prolong this moment. Yeah. He wants to get to know her. Yeah. He doesn't want her to leave anytime soon. And as they are fumbling around looking for this key, he puts his hand on her hand. Yes. Q Aria. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, Ooh, Your hand's cold.
1: Manina. Manina. It's mm-hmm. the beginning of his big aria. And if you've heard anything from this opera, you'll probably have heard this. Uh, it's a huge tenor aria. It takes him up to a high C. And it's just Puccini at his absolute best. He simply, he's, he's simply telling her who he is. He's a poet. Uh, what, does he, you know, what does he love in life? What, who, 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 who am I? And he tells her who he is.
0: And then she replies. And she has... What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is interesting is that these are really the first arias in the whole, the whole piece. Very much so. Because yeah. that, that, that playing around with the, the four friends and that there are no the sort of standout arias.
1: Not at all. It's all. And it's not recitative as we used to hear in Bel Canto and in, in uh, early and middle, middle period Verdi. It's, it's simply dialogue set to music. It's very naturally flowing and seeming, uh, and that's Puccini's genius.
0: Mimi starts this her aria, Mi chiamano Mimi. They yeah. call me Mimi, Right. even though that's not her name. No, her name is Lucia. And she tells her story. Yes. And what is her
1: story? She's a very simple girl. She's a seamstress. Uh, She loves to embroider flowers. She loves the spring. What what she really loves, she says, is the spring. And And this is when the aria starts to really open up. And her voice just soars and blooms when and she talks about how she loves the spring and the, the warmth of it.
0: And, and that is important for the whole piece, though, that, oh that, that differentiation boy, of the it, seasons. Because yeah. here we are, Christmas Eve, it's the middle of winter. And we are going to find in Act 3 that that the coldness of winter and the warmth and the blooming of spring are... Uh, juxtaposed yes and there's a moment in act four musical moment we'll talk about that when we get there while Mimi is in Rodolfo's apartment though she faints yes and this is of course a foreboding of what is going to happen because she
1: is sick yeah it's his first clue that there's something not something wrong something physically wrong does she know What's wrong with her? Yeah, she know well, she may not know exactly what it is. I mean it's it's tuberculosis. We know that now, right. you know, with with uh, you know twenty first century hindsight, but she knows she's ill. She knows she's ill, but uh, she may not know exactly what it is or, or what the prospects of her her continued
0: health are then we have this glorious oh. duet that ends the act O Suave Fanchula. Yeah. Where, I mean, it's just. Oh, it, it gives you goosebumps.
1: I'm just thinking about it. It's
0: giving me goosebumps right now. Oh, suave fanciulla. Oh, sweet young thing, sweet yeah. girl.
1: Yeah. The moon comes out, and, they, and the moon sort of inspires them to just sort of. Just turn to one another and, and declare, you "No, know, I, I love you. I'm into you." <laughs> and in, in in sort of the aftermath of that outpouring, she asks uh, if uh, if she could go with him to meet his friends at the Café Momu because he still is they're, they're waiting for him.
0: Right, and because uh, they have called up. In uh-huh. fact, while he's with Mimi, they have called up saying, "Where are you?" Right, and that wonderful Ariel Swavi Fantula ends as they are leaving the apartment, as they're walking into the uh, the hallway and they sing this Amor. Amor.
1: And on the last Amor it gets quite high. Yeah, sea. <laughs> joint, a joint high sea. Although I think, I think the way Puccini... Uh, oh, I hope I'm right about this. I think the way Puccini originally wrote it, maybe he doesn't go up to the sea with her, but it's become performance practice that he does. So you almost never hear it where they don't both jointly go up to
0: the sea. Act two. We are in the Café Moose. And the four of them are, are together again. Mimi is there. And they are, I think the term, the technical term is carousing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good word for it, yeah. It's Christmas Eve. Yeah. And there is all this activity going on in the Latin Quarter, in the Cartier Latin, that includes Papignol. The the toy
1: vendor, Uh uh-huh, and the kids surrounding him, uh, yelling to their parents, I want this, I want this. It's Um, a, a real crowd scene here. Yeah. With with lots of little pockets of activity going on and just popping out here and there to to grab your attention and to you know set the scene of this bustling uh, square in a major city, Paris, at Christmas time.
0: So the uh, the four friends and Mimi are at the cafe, they are eating and drinking, and then Musetta
1: arrives. Uh, With about as grand an entrance as one could hope for in an
0: opera. And she's with this older guy, Alcindoro. Yeah, her sugar daddy. (laughs) And she has a history with Marcello. Yes, yes. They They were in love, they were together, they were an item, but have split up and it it ended badly apparently <laughs>
1: because there are some some very harsh feelings on Marcello's part for for Musetta although you sense that underlying that he still carries a torch for her
0: she sees him across the cafe and that's all it takes she starts to flirt with him uh-huh I'm, Alcindoro is sort of tossed by the wayside yeah yeah, yeah. Sugar daddy is uh is uh, he he's gone. Yeah. And she starts to sing. She has this glorious Musetta's waltz. Yes. This glorious song. Yes. Quando men vo.
1: She sings, when I walk down the street, all the men turn to look at me.
0: <laughs> She's, uh, yeah. <laughs> she is a a larger-than-life figure. Completely larger. And she life. forms this contrast with Mimi, who is so unassuming and shy and frail. And Musetta is completely the opposite, isn't she? Exactly right. It's a, it's a great contrast in character. Musetta claims that there's something wrong with her shoe, it's hurting her foot, and she she gives it to Alcindoro and says, take it to the cobblers right now. Yes. Get it fixed for me, please, dear. (laughs) Right. And so he goes off with the shoe, and, of course, she then is free to... Rush into Marcello's arms. (laughs) (laughs) And they finish their meal, they finish their carousing... And they leave. They head off into the streets. But not before they say to the, the metro d' Oh, out the old guy will pay for it. <laughs> exactly. And then they go out into the street. There is a military band. Yes, which uh, they're following. There's a, a parade going past and they join the crowd following the parade. And off they go into uh, the Christmas Eve sunset, so to speak. Indeed. And that's the end of act two. Right. Act three is sometime later, Yes, and we are at one of the gates to the city of Paris.
1: The Barrier uh, d'Enfer. The, the, literally, the gates of hell, hell. Is, is what that translates
0: to. Next to, to this gate is an inn, a tavern, and Marcello is there because, in fact, the painting that he was working on in Act One, which was titled The Parting of the Red Sea, is now hanging outside this inn, having been, I think, repurposed. <laughs> and in fact, he, uh, I guess this is a, a, a telling commentary, but he's made, able to make a better living painting these insides than he is just being a, a straight painter a legitimate working yes. for his art. Yes, exactly. So he's inside with Rodolfo and with Musetta, and he gets called out because Mimi shows up. And wants to see him. And what sort of state is she in? She's in in a very bad
1: way. Um, She is... It's winter again. Yeah, it's winter again, and she is uh, feeling the effects. Uh, She is much physically worse. Uh, She has a pronounced cough. And what she's really come to talk to Marcello about, though, is her relationship with Rodolfo, which is foundering,
0: apparently. They're arguing a lot, she and Rodolfo. She says he's very jealous. Right. And she doesn't know what to do. Right.
1: Marcello basically tells him, you know, just calm down, you know, and and you know, go home and I'll talk to him. But he, then Rodolfo comes out. Yeah, and he confronts Rodolfo about it. Mimi sort of hides behind a tree so that she can't be seen. Right, and Marcello doesn't know she's there and neither does Rodolfo. And they talk, Rodolfo and Marcello talk. Marcello asks Rodolfo, what's, what's the problem? You know, why, why are you, why are you so, you know, cranky all the time? And he says, well, it's Mimi, she's a flirt.
0: she
1: She flirts with everybody and it's just, you know, and it's just driving me crazy. And Marcello says, oh, come on, really? <laughs> because he, re- he recognizes that, you know, what, what this is is that Rodolfo is a young man, and he, is, he doesn't have the maturity to deal with the fact that Mimi is, is dying. getting worse and worse. And he, say, he finally admits, yes, she's dying.
0: She is I, I can't Ill. do anything about it. And she hears him say that. Yeah. And, of course, the contrast, again, is between Rodolfo and Mimi and Marcello and Musetta. Right, because Musetta is inside the inn, and while Marcello is out talking to Rodolfo, she's flirting with some guy inside. He and hears her laughing, and he's, "What is who's she flirting with in there?" And he goes stomping in to find her. Mimi and Rodolfo come together, and they talk about their relationship. Yeah, and what do they decide to do? Well,
1: they they des- they resolve that they will stay together for the duration of the winter.
0: And then when the spring comes, they'll part ways. And again, we have that contrast between winter and spring that yeah. we saw in Act 1. Right. Act 4, we are almost back to Act 1 again. We are back in the the guy's apartment, the garret, right, in the Latin Quarter. Right. The four of them are there, and they are cutting up and carrying on. As they were doing at the beginning of Act 1. Right. Before, the, before the, all four of them get together, though, we find just
1: Rodolfo and Marcello alone on stage. And they sing a brief duet. As we do at the beginning of Act 1. Right. In which we learn that they're both separated from Mimi and Muzenda respectively. And they're longing for their, for their girlfriends, basically. They miss them terribly. They love them. And then <laughs> Shonar and Colina come in and, and everything returns to exactly as you say, the beginning of Act 1. They're cutting up their horse playing all over the place and they're just really having a grand old time.
0: Until Musetta shows up. Yes. And she comes in with the in devastating
1: news. She's in a panic. She found Mimi and she's dying. She got her that, this far, but she can't get her up
0: the stairs. And Mimi has asked to come to Rodolfo's place because she was so happy there yeah and there is that sense of impending doom she's come there to die to die and so they bring her in and they they lay her on the couch and somebody is sent to get a doctor yes and i think musetta leaves to get a muffler for mimi's hands we are back to those cold hands again aren't we
1: right and Rodolfo and Mimi are left alone together, and this is the most. Oh boy, it's a gut-wrenching scene. She's dying. He realizes this is, you know, <laughs> he's he's trying to, to deny it. But um, you know, she she's asleep for a little bit and she wakes up and she oh, tells him how immensely she loves him. And she sings it in this in this phrase. And the way that she, the way that Puccini scores it, she's up there by herself. There's, there's just a, a bare minimum of accompaniment. So she's, she is literally out there, exposed. You know, uh, singing this her, her immense love for Rodolfo. to her sings the same phrase back to her to comfort her but brings the entire orchestra with him and it's as if he is musically warming her he brings the whole warmth of the this you and the puccini orchestra is large Mm -hmm. he brings the entirety of the of it with there and sings the same phrase back to her but almost envelops her with the musical warmth of the orchestra it's It just destroys me
0: every time. Musetta comes back. She's got the the muffler to warm Mimi's hands. One of the guys comes back from the doctors with some medication that they have managed to find some money to purchase. But then Mimi just kind of quietly falls asleep again, and it's while she's asleep she simply slips away. And then Rodolfo realizes what has happened. And just cries out her name. Yeah,
1: his friends basically see it before he does, and they come to him and they just sort of grab him, you know, by the shoulders and say "coraggio," courage. And then he realizes, and then the you know the orchestra comes in full tilt, and he sp- cries her name, and
0: and then and that's the end. That's the end. What is interesting here, though, is the whole status of of consumption of tuberculosis, because you compare mm-hmm. this story with for example la traviata violetta mm-hmm. violetta in la traviata written earlier in the century sort of mid century yeah and in traviata that tuberculosis has a sort of romantic sense to it that it's right. it's it's almost an ennobling thing because it was it was often Thought of that way, and
1: especially amongst Romantic authors and composers, it was considered to be.
0: It was regarded as a Romantic disease. And here, oddly enough, Puccini and the whole Verismo genre of opera. Yeah, there is a realism. here. Verismo meaning realism. Right. It's, it roughly corresponds
1: to the the literary realism movement. You know, where we see with Stephen Crane and and folks like that, who who instead of focusing on Royal characters and mythological gods and goddesses and and uh, and nobled heroes deals
0: with the, the little the people. common people, the common people exactly. And so here, tuberculosis has lost all of its romanticism, all of its sort of endearing charm, if yeah. you like. Yeah. Let's talk about the music because what Puccini does throughout the opera is returns to
1: certain themes, which is what he does in opera after opera. It's what he's he's brilliant at. He's brilliant at those scenes, those crowd scenes of differentiating little pockets of the crowd and, and really characterizing the people in the crowd. They're not just like a Greek chorus. They're individuals in a group. He does that. He does dialogue brilliantly, like no one before or even you know, arguably since, uh, at least among Italian composers. Uh, and then he weaves in and out of his set pieces. I mean, you can take... Kjellida manina or mi mimi. You could take it out and perform it as an aria all by itself in concert, but you know, the music really flows in and out of it, you know, very seamlessly. And there is no fat in this score. There is not one note you could trim or
0: would want to. It's not. A, it's not a long opera. Not at all. I not mean, it, all. it would basically fit into one act of a Wagner. Piece. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> exactly. La Bohème today is one of the most performed operas anywhere in the world. Why? Absolutely. Well, is it, is all, it that love story?
1: It is. It's for all the reasons we've just uh, talked about. In addition to which, if you are considerate of young voices, if you're a conservatory, it's a great piece to do. You can do bohème in a conservatory, you, you, know, you can, but you don't want to do Wagner. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to put young voices up against a Wagnerian orchestra. If you're canny about it, even with the size of the Puccini Orchestra, you can give young voices this opera to perform, and perform extraordinarily well. Uh, and it benefits from having people who are of the age that these characters are supposed to be.
0: Giacomo Puccini's La Boheme. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm John Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.